Last week, for the first time in 40 years, Boston hosted the National NAACP Convention, and it's probably crossed onto your radar, if at all, for a few reasons. For one thing, Boston has had a bad reputation when it comes to communities of color, particularly black communities. So the national convention coming back offered a chance for our increasingly diverse group of elected leaders to make the case that the city can be a hub of black culture and black political power. For another, those who attend the NAACP convention each year get to propose, debate, and weigh in on the group's national priorities. These resolutions can direct organizing efforts, impact political campaigns, and generally set the tone for racial justice initiatives going forward. So, what came out of the 114th convention? I'm Jennifer Smith with Commonwealth Magazine, and today I'm joined by Tanisha Sullivan, president of the Boston NAACP. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Tanisha. I hope you've gotten some rest. Well, it, it has been um, quite, uh, I, I will say, it, it hasn't been quite the full relaxation yet, but we're, we're inching toward that. Um, it was just a phenomenal uh, convention. Uh, there was so much energy. Um, we're really looking forward to the impact um, of this convention on the greater Boston area and the Commonwealth as a whole. So super excited. Well, let's start at the top there. This was the first time Boston has hosted the NAACP convention in 40 years. So from the top, why push to bring the convention here? And did it achieve those goals? I think, you know, Boston, just first and foremost, is a city where a lot of organizations kind of look to for uh, conventions. Uh, and so the fact that the NAACP convention hadn't been held in Boston since 1982 um, was striking. Um, and, you know, there were reasons, both practical as well as, you know, reasons that had more to do with perceptions um, that factored into, I think, that 41 uh, year gap. One is Boston is an incredibly expensive city uh, to host a convention. Um, and fundamentally, as an organization, yes, we have a national office, but the lifeblood of the NAACP are the local units like the Boston branch all over the country, over 2,200 of them, in fact, um, that are led by volunteers um, like myself. And when you think about the cost associated with a convention of this type that can be a barrier. And so we're real, we were really pleased that um, back in 2018, 2019, um, the city under Mayor Walsh made a commitment to help support the convention to ensure that it could be financially accessible to people all across the country from the small rural communities to the large urban cities. Um, and so that was a really big hurdle for us to cross. The other issue issue that we have to be really honest about is Boston's perception for some and reality for others of being one of our nation's most racist uh, cities. This is not a city that is viewed among the Black community as one that is welcoming. Um, it is not a city that historically has seen a lot of prosperity related to the Black community. And so it, it Boston hasn't ranked high on the, oh, we want to go there list. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, and I say this humbly as, you know, someone who's, you know, fourth generation in here in Boston, um, you know, that's a reality um, for, for many that we have to acknowledge if we're ever going to move past it. And so I was really hopeful that this convention would present us with an opportunity to reintroduce ourselves 
here in Boston as a city that one has black people, uh, two has black people who are thriving. Um, and three is a city that understands our history and is working really hard to ensure that we're not repeating um, history and that we are a city where regardless of who you are, where you come from, you not only have access to opportunity, but you're actually realizing the, the impact of those opportunities. And I do think um, by all accounts at this point, um, we've hit the mark, um, but really the true measure of the success of this convention and the impact of this convention is going to be measured six to 12 months out when we see um, you know, how this convention impacts the policies and the initiatives that are advanced um, here in the Commonwealth. I'm so glad that you pivoted to that because one of the questions, of course, is, well, you know, why pay attention to it? Don't we have conventions all the time here in here in Boston? You know, what is the measure of a successful NAACP convention? So looking back, for instance, at conventions over the past few years, uh, what are some examples of kind of strong policy advocacy areas that you would say um, you would hope to see kind of modeled um, if we're thinking about some of the resolutions that we'll get into uh, later in this episode. But what's the model for a successful NAACP convention to you? I, I mean, I think one of the things that's really important um, for people to understand about the NAACP, and I, and I hope for those who participated, they got this, um, is that you know, we are a legacy organization within the civil rights movement. Um, we have evolved over the past 114 plus years um, as an association. And where we are in this moment um, is really uh, an organization that is focused on the advancement of public policy. And our national president spoke a lot about this. Our national chair spoke a lot about this. Um, and, and this is the work that we do here in the Boston branch. It's public policy because we believe that at this moment in our nation's history, it's critically important for organizations like ours to help our society design, uh, advance, and implement public policy laws that will help ensure you know, that, again, all of us, regardless of who we are, where we come from, have the opportunity to truly experience all the promises of this great nation, um, have the opportunity to experience the prosperity that our Commonwealth in this instance um, is experiencing. And so policy is really a cornerstone of what we do. What are some of the policy focuses? We have, as an association, always prioritized um, voting rights and access, educational opportunity, economic opportunity. Um, we have, over the last, I would probably say, five to seven years, really leaned into environmental and climate justice, understanding the disproportionate impact um, of a climate change on communities of color and lower income communities. And so what we've seen in the past, I am hopeful, you know, has been policy that has really helped to set the, the chart the course for the association and for Black America um, writ large. And I'm hopeful that, you know, the conversations that we experienced here this year will do the same. Were there areas that felt particularly impactful? You know, one of the things, one of the great benefits of an NAACP convention is that it really does put on 
on main stage um, for all of America to see the rich diversity that exists within the Black community. So very often, uh, Black communities are seen as a monolith. You know, all Black people vote Democrat or all Black people, you know, are progressive or, you know, all, you know, this, this kind of, these blanket beliefs about Black communities. And I think, you know, again, the an NAACP convention gives us an opportunity, you know, it, it's public facing for people to see black folks primarily in rigorous discussion and debate about some of this nation's most pressing issues. You take gun violence, for example. This is an issue when we talk about responsible gun control. This is an issue where not all people agree. And not all black community members are on, you know, are, are, are marching to the same beat. We all want safe and healthy communities. We all all want um, to ensure public safety, um, but the way in which we get there may vary depending upon who you are, where you come from, and what your experiences are. So I love that about NAACP conventions because in addition to really drilling down on the critical issues um, impacting Black America and as a result impacting America as a whole, like sensible gun control, um, we really get to see the rich diversity of thought, um, the rich diversity of ideology um, within, uh, within our community as a whole. So I, I am also uh, very glad you brought up the debate because for anyone that was watching the resolutions portion of this convention, that was nine hours or so yeah. of discussing it's these resolutions. This <laughs> it, it was shorter this year? Yes, oh, okay. Well. All right. Well, I'm going to go crawl under a table. Um, so one of the one of the things that I think kind of gets to the point that you're raising, which is kind of what takes a public policy question and makes it um, a Black American's question. So there was a lot of discussion right off the bat, for instance, about um, affirming the right to effective counsel. And it was kind of framed as an NAACP priority area because of the disproportionate impact on communities of color. Of course, many people who are in prison um, have to use public defenders, but disproportionately the people who really, really rely on them are Black and Latino defendants. So can you talk to me a little bit about um, how you conceive of the public policy and the intersection with kind of what is Black public policy? I love this question uh, because, uh, you know, in so many ways, I think, you know, our nation is is at a point where there's just so much divisiveness and and it's the debates are um, when it comes to policy are hyper polarized right now and um I, I do believe there are efforts to keep us divided and to and to put us in into boxes so that people feel like oh if you're advocating for you know um if you're advocating on an issue related to access to housing um, in urban environments that you're not concerned about housing access in rural communities, right? And that keeping us hyper-polarized in that way and, and creating division where there should not be division really does hold us back as a society. It holds us back as a, as a local community, as a nation. And so one of the things that I am really hopeful this convention can help people to see, and it's it's part of the work that we do here very intentionally in Boston, is that, you know, there really are not Black issues 
And what I mean by that is it's not about a black issue or white issue or an issue that relates to the Latinx community or the AAPI community. Many of these issues are, you know, issues that impact us as a society as a whole. These are deeply American issues that are impacting families across the country, regardless of their background. Right. And so when we talk about, you know, a right, effective um, right to counsel, and we think about the criminal legal system as a whole, for example, um, the reality is we're not saying, you know, effective right to counsel for black people. We're saying, look, regardless of who you are, you have a fundamental right in this country to have counsel that is effective, that is quality, that is going to represent you vigorously, zealously, as we say in the legal profession, right? You got a zealous advocate um, to ensure that when we say you're innocent until proven guilty, it actually matters. Likewise, when we talk about issues related to housing, um, you know, let's bring it home, an issue that impacts so many um, folks across the Commonwealth. We are in a housing crisis right now. This is not a how, you know, it's not a black housing crisis. It is a housing crisis that is impacting working families across this Commonwealth every day. Um, you know, I had the opportunity last year to crisscross the Commonwealth and to really, you know, to be deep in many of our communities across Massachusetts. And the reality is, we do have a crisis, but when we as an association really, you know, lean in to work with um, local, state, and federal elected officials to advance housing policy, we, we do so with the belief that is based on data <laughs> that if we design public policy that centers the most vulnerable which unfortunately often means people of color, as well as people from lower income households, if we center the most vulnerable in our policy drafting and advancement, then we are going to impact the whole. You know, through this convention, one of the outcomes I'm hopeful of is that more people will come to an understanding um, that, again, this is not about, you know, um, policy that is just about black people or just about women or you know um, about a specific demographic group but it is about public policy that acknowledges that there that we need to be intentional about including everybody and ensuring that everybody has what they need in order to effectively compete um, and therefore be able to um, really realize the full promise of our country. And so some of these, of course, are dealing with specifically kind of racialized questions in the education space. Of course, there was plenty of discussion about kind of student debt writ broadly, but then also there was a lot of diving into uh, kind of making sure that the policy was denouncing uh, anti-critical race theory legislation that's been popping up all over the country. From your perspective in Massachusetts, we're in a little bit of an interesting space in this national conversation, right? Where um, if anything, we have legislators who are who are overly eager to, to kind of um, express solidarity with communities of color, but what does it actually look like from a policy perspective? Are we in Massachusetts also in this conversation around critical race theory and kind of um, the way that we talk about the nation's history in schools? 
we are in it. We're right in the middle of it. I think sometimes, like many of the national policy debates, because we are not uh, perceived as being anti, uh, you know, some of these things, uh, the, the, the work that we still have to do doesn't necessarily get the attention um, that it's, that's needed. And I say that to say, you know, now for several years, uh, the CARE Coalition, um, which is a coalition of uh, organizations from across Massachusetts has been focused on, you know, an ethnic studies curriculum um, within the Commonwealth schools. And again, this has been a years long journey and we're still not there. Um, I think when we talk about, um, you know, being Massachusetts, being a leader, especially being a leader in public education, um, we have to take a closer look at our curriculum and ensure that at a time when there are parts of our nation that are hell-bent on taking us backwards and, and, and hell-bent on you know, trying to rewrite history or trying not to tell our history, that we here in Massachusetts um, are deeply committed to ensuring that we are going to be the guardians of, uh, of American history. And American history includes ethnic studies. American history includes you know, honest, uh, recount of our history as a nation with uh, the slave trade, um, with the enslavement of people, enslavement of indigenous people, enslavement of black people uh, in this country, and also being honest about the impact of that um, industry uh, on our communities and society today. And so it is my hope um, that as a commonwealth, we'll not just, you know, kind of point fingers and, and make social media posts about, you know, what's happening in Florida and, oh my goodness, can you believe them? But that we will, as, um, as a commonwealth, um, really say, we're going to lead on this. Look, we can't control what's happening in Florida or in Texas, um, but what we can do is make sure that in classrooms across this commonwealth, um, we have robust ethnic studies programming. We can ensure that in public education classrooms across this commonwealth, that when we're teaching American history, it is the fullness of that history so that our students, you know, can actually make their own decisions about, you know, how they want to see our nation continue to evolve and what role they want to play. That's what education is about. And we cannot have a thriving public education system. We cannot have thriving communities if we are not ensuring that in our classrooms, that our curriculum that is offered to all of our children um, really does help to prepare them to be um, contributing, um, positively contributing uh, citizens to our, to our society. So I'm going to run through just in case uh, someone did not have the time to sit through the apparently short nine hours uh, of resolutions here. A few a few kind of samples of, of the array here. You mentioned gun control. There were uh, resolutions pushing for, for instance, better background checks and gun purchases, uh, repealing stand your ground laws. Economically, there were resolutions looking at promoting equity within the IRS, the tax system, um, but also, for instance, supporting Black farmers, uh, funneling resources into communities impacted by redlining. 
So my question is, where are you seeing potential for the most movement over the next year? Uh, Obviously, a lot of these resolutions build on existing resolutions that come up kind of year over year. So if there was a specific subject area that you're keeping an eye on, is it in education? Is it in the economic space? Is it in gun control? What's, What's most interesting to you that we might see some movement on before next year's convention? Yeah, I I mean, I unfortunately, I think it has to be all of the above because they're all so interconnected. You know, that said, you know, we we have to ensure um, that across this country, we're dealing with the the reality of an economic crisis where there are far too many families, families, period, um, that are um, trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet month to month. Um, and so when, so our policies that really speak to the economy, speak to um, not only access to jobs, but also support for small and micro business owners, um, those are critically important. And, you know, one of those, to your point is, you know, support for Black farmers. We know across the country, um, farming is in in the farming industry and family farms, you know, are really taking a hit. You know, I have a cousin um, in Lunenburg who owns a farm and it's tough. Um, And so I would say any of our policies, whether they are those that we discussed and debated this year, or we're talking about those, you know, from, from years prior that really do center economic opportunity, I think have to be front and center because when people and families are economically secure, so many other things fall into place. When people and families are economically secure, then there's deeper uh, investment, both by time and resources into public education. Um, there's, there's more focus on uh, the health, the, the, the safety and well-being of our communities. And so I do believe that the economic piece is something where um, not only do I expect us as an association and certainly as a local branch um, to continue to focus, but I, I believe it's a cornerstone, an important cornerstone um, for all of the other the work um, that that we have to do to ensure that communities are truly thriving. You know, the the theme of the convention was thriving together. And so um, that really is is our focus is ensuring that that folks, that communities, that families, that individuals are thriving. How do you see your role personally these days? You had mentioned kind of having the opportunity in the context of the housing crisis, of course, to crisscross the state. And that was when you were running for secretary of the Commonwealth. Are you looking at pursuing elected office uh, in the future? You know, like like you've just finished the convention. It's been back in Boston for 40 years. Um, we had uh, Cheryl Clybring Crawford, uh, who's, of course, co-leading uh, uh, Ranked Choice Voting Boston campaign with you on the podcast a few weeks ago. But what's what's in your front window here, especially yeah, I mean- if Bill Galvin decides not to run again? Well, you know, I'm really fortunate. I, you know, I'm, I am, 
I, I was asked by Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor uh, Driscoll um, to really help the administration think about um, the prosperity and well-being of the Black community across the Commonwealth. Um, again, with an understanding that um, that there are just so many disparities there, and far too many people uh, within the Black community who are not benefiting from the great prosperity. Um, that this Commonwealth has experienced and, and they want to do something about that. And so, um, so they asked uh, me to chair their uh, advisory council on black empowerment. And I, in that role, I have the opportunity to work with just an incredible, incredibly diverse group of leaders from across the Commonwealth to advise um, the administration on policy um, that can make a difference. And so I'm really looking forward to continuing that work, you know, what's most important to me, again, as someone who has deep roots, um, not only here in Boston, um, but in the Commonwealth, this is home, this is, you know, generations of home. It's and, 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 and I've been very fortunate and blessed here in the Commonwealth. Um, I want to make sure that for future generations of, of little girls who look like me, um, <laughs> you know, that they can not only experience um, really the fullness of what I've been blessed to experience, but even more. Um, and so that is, that's really where my focus is, um, just in terms of service to the Commonwealth, and then continuing to ensure um, from an NAACP standpoint, that this convention is not just a blip on the screen. It's not, you know, it, that, that it wasn't just a great Great event, but that it really does have impact. And, and on that front, I do want to thank um, the Commonwealth. I want to thank certainly our state legislature, the governor's office, um, and the city of Boston, um, from the mayor's office to our business leaders, um, to our nonprofit institutions that really helped to make this 114th National NAACP Convention. Um, one of the largest, we're still counting, one of the largest in NAACP history. We had over 13,000 people participating, which is really a big deal, um, making it um, the largest, the most inclusive, the most accessible convention in NAACP history, um, and also making it one of the largest convenings that our city and that our Commonwealth has ever seen that really does center um, racial justice um, and racial equality. And that, for all of us, is something that we should celebrate. We all had a hand in that. Um, and I'm just really proud of, uh, proud of what we collectively, as a Massachusetts society, um, were able to show um, about who we are and what we're hoping to do. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, the very quick lightning round at the end is, um, so uh, are you going to push to bring this back very, very soon? <laughs> That's not a fair question a week later. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You're very tired right now. That's true. And I also want to clarify, it is election season for everybody. So is that like a yes, look for you on a ballot in the future? No, look for you on a ballot in the future if everyone is in um, full election brain at the moment, because the legislature wow. may be on break, but we aren't. Listen, I hope everyone is in full election brain um, because we need, we definitely need folks to be paying attention to these municipal elections across the Commonwealth. I ran for Secretary of State uh, last year because I do believe deeply that in order for us to have the type of democracy that we all deserve, that we all want, that we all can have, um, that we need to have a system that really does not only give access to everybody, that everyone wants to participate in. And so I'm gonna continue to do that work. Um, that, is, that is life's work. Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, as you mentioned, I have the opportunity to co-chair uh, Ranked Choice Voting Boston uh, this year uh, with Cheryl Clyburn Crawford from Mass Vote. Um, and again, I, I think that these are the types of uh, policy initiatives that we should be focused on here in the, in the Commonwealth that really help us to be innovative in this space as our democracies as our democracy is evolving, the structures through which we experience our democracy should also continue to evolve. And so that's what I'm focused on. And I say that not to sidestep the question, because I know that's what you're thinking, um, but to say, but to really help people to understand, look, you don't have to hold elected office. You don't have to have a title to play an active role role in, in, in ensuring and securing our democracy for the future. And so I, you know, when I ran for office, what I said to everybody is everybody has something to offer. And I still believe that. And you don't need an office to do that. And so I hope if, if, if nothing else, I can serve as an example for people that part of showing up as a citizen of this country, as someone who cares deeply about our democracy is finding a way to serve and serving in volunteerism as I do is one of the ways that you can do that. And so again, I hope that that serves as an inspiration, as an encouragement um, to folks across the Commonwealth, not to be complacent in our democracy, but to really lean in and find ways that you can help us to continue to move forward. Okay, well, I think that's all the time we're going to have for this week. Again, uh, thank you so much to Tanisha Sullivan, president of the Boston NAACP. And to our listeners, we will see you next week.